Hello, and welcome to the Alchemy of Art podcast with your host, Addie Hirschton. Join us as we share folk tales and true stories about artists and the creative process. Our quote of the day is by Hundertwasser. When we dream alone, it is only a dream. But when many dream together, it is the beginning of a new reality. Hello everyone, my name is Adi Hirschton. I'm a contemporary impressionist painter, art instructor, author, and public speaker. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories about art and the creative process to inspire you and help you move forward. On the show, I interview artists from a wide variety of mediums so that we can learn from each other's processes and philosophy. Today's podcast features an interview with the artist Paula Scott Franz and the story of the art therapy movement. Events I've got coming up that you guys are all welcome to join me for in uh, the next few weeks about an intuitive painting class that's going to start up at the Indianapolis Art Center. Uh, I've got uh, a show at the Harrison Art Center that's on the theme of gardens. Me and a bunch of other painters are going to be getting together for that. Super exciting. Um, I've got a solo show at Petrov's Fine Art and Framing that is in Indianapolis here. That's also in April. Uh, what else? I got? In May, I'm going to be doing a workshop that's at the Hatch Center. It's going to be flower painting. I've got... Um, Let's see, I guess that's all I signed up for this available in the near future. If you're interested in any of those events, as always, please uh, go to my website, azirfineart.com, and sign up for my newsletter. Love to see you at any of those events. And then, of course, the big news for me is that I'm finally almost finished with my how-to painting guidebook. It's called The Alchemy of Painting. In fact, the proof is being sent here as we speak. Ah, I'm so excited about it. So in the coming months, um, you'll hear more from me on that. And that book will be available a few months from now. Now, without further ado, here's my interview with Paula Scott Franz. Paula Scott Franz is a fiber artist who enjoys the versatility of wool, felt, silk, and other natural materials. She's been working with the Indianapolis Museum of Art for over 20 years. She currently teaches art workshops there for all ages and also teaches felt making at the St. Vincent Cancer Center. I just have to quote her on this. It's from her LinkedIn site of all places. She said, for me, teaching art and creating art go hand in hand. I believe in doing both. I learn continually from others and strive to make each piece I create or each classroom interaction a way to instill hope in my viewers and joy in my students. Uh, just shows you so much about Paula. <laughs> in addition to her work with the Indianapolis Museum of Art, Paula creates felt clothing and artwork that she sells at local art 
fairs and shops. You can find out more on Facebook about Paula's work under uh, Kukula's Felt and Gathered Light. Welcome, Paula. Thank you, and thank you, Addie, for having me on your podcast. It's very exciting. <laughs> Lovely. Well, I'm so glad you're here. First question. Da-da-da. What is the story of how you became an artist? Well, that's a really good story. I And it is a story, actually. Um, <laughs> I um, had an uncle named Herman Holliday, who worked for the United Nations and the Ford Foundation. He worked all over the, the world, actually. And when he was working in China or Africa or Germany after World War II, he would take these wonderful pictures and then he would bring them home and give some to my mom, his sister, and give some to his brother, Joseph Holliday, who was a portrait painter. When I saw Uncle Joe's paintings, I wanted to paint like him. And even though I was never able to accomplish that realistic look, um, he and my parents really encouraged me to find my own, my own style. Well, the way I found my own style was being five years old and being talked to like an adult, <laughs> the way I found my own style was I watched television because it was new and there was a Walt Disney show on called Zorro. Zorro was the swashbuckling type of show where they fought with swords. And at the beginning of the show, Zorro had his sword and he would carve a Z in some paper or something. And when I saw that, I just was in love with the whole idea of sword fighting and, and making this Z. So I grabbed a pencil and I started making Zs all over the dining room wall. <laughs> which, <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> well, which had lots of floral designs because it was wallpaper. And I didn't realize that it was new wallpaper, but I just went ahead and made my Z's. So as far as my little arm could reach, I was making Z's and writing the word Zorro, which I thought, you know, was kind of neat because I didn't really write, but I was copying what I saw. So my mom comes in and she goes, oh my goodness, what have you done? And I'm just saying, Zorro, Zorro, she's, she's very upset with me. You know, I don't know it, but this means hundreds of dollars worth of new wallpaper. <laughs> so after that, in a few days, I got this big art package and it was full of crayons and watercolors and lots of different kinds of paper and um, just anything they thought I might enjoy. And they were right. I loved doing this. I think they thought, well, she's got the art gene in our family and we're going to get her uh, whatever she needs um, to go forward with that. So I started making little drawings and paintings and um, never, ever stopped. Um, and I would switch art mediums around, but pretty much it was um, until I was in high school or out of high school, actually, it was actually... Um, drawing and painting. And <clears throat> so as I got older, um, we would go on vacation and I'd take all my art materials with me. And one summer when I was about 12 or 11 or 12, we went to Fox Lake, which is in Angola, Indiana. It's an African-American lake. And we were just having fun. My brothers were off fishing or running around. And I'm 
being the nerd I am, staying home and, and painting. And at that time, I was in, really influenced by fairy tales. I still am. Fairy tales and legends. And I loved the legend of the Pipe Piper, even though it's kind of a strange legend. And, and you probably don't want to go too far into that legend <laughs> because it's kind of weird. But I, at that time, all I could think of was this magical you know, person, personage. And so I drew him the way I saw him with this kind of scarf around his neck that was all motley and, and checkered. And it was a pen and ink drawing. Um, and my mom said, that's, that's quite good. And um, my parents were never like real overly enthusiastic, but they always were very solid in their, um, their uh, wanting me to go ahead with things that I enjoyed. So I don't know why I got it into my head, but I was thinking about, you know, I could probably sell this like Uncle Joe sells his paintings. So I went up the hill to um, Mrs. Birch's cabin, her cottage rather, and I knocked on her door and I just said, hello, Mrs. Birch, would you like to see my paintings? And she said, oh, yes, I would. And we, I went in and I sat on her couch and she starts looking at my Pied Piper and she said, oh, I love this. This is, this is really interesting. And she held it up above her couch. And I started feeling really kind of, you know, artisty and important and like, wow, I can actually do this. An adult likes this. And she goes, this is really good. How, how much do you want for it? And I really hadn't thought about that part. Um, like a lot of artists you just do the work and hope you can sell it. And I had thought about, you know, the time I put into it or materials. I was only 11. So I said, off the top of my head, $30. And she said, that sounds reasonable. And she went and got her purse and gave me $30 in cash. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's more than I've ever had my little hands uh, at that point. And so she said, now, um, are you coming back this summer? Because we were going to leave in a couple of days. I said, yes, we're coming back uh, in August. And she said, well, when you get back, I want you to come and see it because I'm going to have it matted and framed. And I said, wow, okay, I definitely will come back. So I ran down the hill to our little cottage, which was called the, um, the um, Kingfisher because my aunt who owned it, her name was King. Her last name was King. So it's called the Kingfisher. And it had this big knocker on the door that was like a kingfish. And you pulled the little bob and the beak knocked on the door. It was really cool. So I ran into the, the, door, the screen door and it slammed shut. And my mom, don't slam the door. I said, mom, mom, look. And she comes out. She sees this $30. She goes, oh my goodness, where did you get that money? And I said, I, I sold the Pipe Piper to Mrs. Birch. She goes, oh my gosh, what? And she goes, well, it was worth it. And that made me just glow inside. I thought, oh my gosh, adults think I can do this. It must be true. So from then on, I just started doing more and more paintings and um, uh, found different types of art that I liked. I dabbled a little in clay, but not very much. And uh, for the most part, it was it was pretty much uh, painting. Right. And, but then now you 
do you mostly felt it? Why yeah. felt? What draws you to felt over the ceramics or painting, even though that was the first love? Yeah. Um, well, anybody who um, works in felt, they always start out the very same way. Any person's web page or book <laughs> that you read, this was an ancient art and it's so magical. And I thought, Hmm, well, I like magical things. I wonder if that's true. And um, yes, it is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. And it's like magic because it starts out like a cloud of fluff. And within seconds, it's compressed and it's on its way to joining together. The fibers are joining together because you're showing them what you want to do. Um, it's just really interesting. It's tactile. Um, it's... It's not always easy because it's hard physical work if you don't have like a felting machine or something and you're doing large pieces. But um, it is the most satisfying thing I've ever done as far as working in art. And it's not for everyone because some people who work in other mediums, they just can't believe how hard it is <laughs> to do. And, um, and yet easy and immediate. So okay. you make... You want to make a coat in one day, depending on how big it is, a jacket can be made in one day, or uh, absolutely a hat is made in one day, a purse, um, a rug. So it's very quick, but it's also, in some ways, it's very time intensive as well, because you have to do that layout very carefully. And, but once you start felting, that process doesn't always take that long. So, so it's... Um, it's a wonderful ancient medium. It's the first textile art. It's like something like 5,000 years old or older. And they keep still finding these perfect examples in these uh, Iron Age um, tombs and things. Um, and it was a, um, a craft developed by nomads. So it's like a nomadic um, art form, art craft. And they used it for rugs and to and for clothing, for shoes, um, to line their yurts with um, that sort of thing. So um, yeah, it's really ancient, and um, there's something about the actual felt fiber. It's warm and comforting, and to make it, you become warm, not just from perspiration, but but also, <laughs> which, yeah, but um, there's plenty of that, but um, from the warm water that it has to bathe in while you're working with it. So um, it's really interesting and very soothing, relaxing. At a certain point when I do workshops, no one even wants to talk because they love the way it feels so much and they're just kind of going into the movement, the repetitive movements that are necessary and how to, um, and what they're going to do next with it. So it's, it's a very um, intimate kind of process that you go through. It's very meditative and it is like a practice, like a, a meditative practice in many ways. Awesome. So I'm wondering a couple of things. Um, if you can describe the piece that you brought to share with me today to for our listeners and what the symbolism means behind it and maybe a little bit about your process. And then, um, and also, you know, for those who are local and are interested, what you have 
coming up where maybe people can come and try it out at the art museum or they can come see it at these shows you've got coming up? Yeah, um, this piece that um, I brought for you to kind of look at so that you'd know what, you know, what it actually looks and feels like is actually called Eclipse and it's a felt um, landscape. Um, and it was created a couple, three years ago, actually, uh, for the art museum when they were doing it in an accessibility program um, for uh, low-sighted and no-sighted people. Um, and they wanted some sort of art that people could actually touch and um, because most museums you're not supposed to be touching anything. There's a couple of things you can touch, but not very many. So they wanted me to create some things and I created um, three pieces that they could display and people could touch. And so when I found out about um, um, this show called Revision, I thought, well, I'm gonna see if they would like that particular piece in it. And it's um, it represents kind of like a textile, um, um, I won't say universe, but landscape. And uh, there's a center object in it that's kind of round, and it's uh, felted over a um, ball, <laughs> actually. Oh. And, and there's some balls and things in there, and little tiny balls and, and other little things that um, create surprises for your fingers when you touch them. So... Um, so people who cannot see really enjoy touching it because it has little, and I, I don't want to give away all the surprises that are in it because it has some little fun things that you don't notice until you t start to touch it, but um, it has some things that are um, um, in sort of patterned so that it leads your fingers around in a pattern over this landscape. Um, and I also made it rather bright colors so that people who do see or see in limited ways can see the colors if their um, vision pr uh, provides them to see colors and also um, the texture is quite smooth in places and bumpy in places and there's like silk um, that's been felted into the wool so that not every single inch of it feels the same so when you're moving your hands over it, you're going to get different experiences on different parts of the, the piece. So, and that one is going to be um, um, over at Indiana Inner, Inner Church um, Center Gallery, and that's 1100 West 42nd Street, um, and that starts on March the 9th, um, and they're having an opening, but it runs through... Um, April 21st and so I'm, I'm just so happy that they wanted to show it because that's one of the pieces I use now when I'm um, doing demonstrations or whatever but um, I love it and can't bear to part with it so <laughs> so if I can exhi exhibit it sometimes then that's great <laughs> and then take it yeah and then take it back home with you yeah. I understand the feeling I have just a few pieces. It's like I I don't really want these to yeah. go anywhere else. Um, okay, so when you're at the Indianapolis Museum of Art, how do you teach there? What what do you do? Um, you know, if I came to one of the workshops classes that you're doing, what could I expect, mm -hmm. and what happens in that crazy place? Well. Um, 
it d depends on the program because I, I, well, I've been there so long that it seems like I, I never leave the building anymore. But um, I love teaching there. And um, so my job there has changed many times over the years. I've been there a couple of times full-time as a lead artist and and a person who develops programs and teaches programs. But right now, I'm a contract artist, which I, I really love because I get to do so many different types of things. So on Wednesdays, I teach a program called We Wednesdays, and they're tiny little kids from uh, zero to five. And we take them around the gallery, and we have an art hunt, and they find... Uh, certain pieces of art, which I help them find with photographs, and this, and we sing uh, clues to find these pieces of art, and then we go back to the classroom, and we create a a, um, a craft or piece of art that goes with what we were doing that day. So that's on Wednesday, and <laughs> on other days I do different things. So I might be teaching. Um, um, some years I teach after school. Some years. Um, I teach adults. Um, I just did a, a wonderful mobile art project. I think they're going to be doing more of those where you come, you have to sign up for all these programs. And um, um, you come and we uh, draw in the gallery. And the first one was we were drawing a ballerina from Butler. And that was so much fun because oh. she was wonderful. And um, we were doing gesture drawing. So it was very quick. But we got to have her show us some poses, and then if you wanted, you could try out the poses and and um, answer questions like, well, how are ballerinas' shoes made? What's in those shoes? Is it just you on your point, you know, your toes, or is there something in there? So she she brought shoes and um, um, was able to show us how she stands on point and. Um, what is the tutu about? And so it was more than just drawing. It was like actually getting to understand another art form besides a visual art form. It was also dance, and that was wonderful. And she got to um, do some poses and some movement, and um, and the drawings that came out were quite good. I was it was really neat. So um, and then I teach a lot in the summertime. We have um, art classes, ongoing art class. Uh, camps in the summertime um, and it's really wonderful because the teachers get to usually uh, teach something that they really want to teach so they can design the classes submit those proposals um, and then they might get changed a little bit but there's basically it's what you wanted to teach Wow! yeah nice. so that's really nice and that works because you're enthused about it. <laughs> so last year I got to teach, um, uh, what was it? Oh, Ren Fair Camp, because I love going to Renaissance festivals. And I so I had an a actress friend of mine come up and play the queen, and we just had a huge, huge fun time learning uh, crazy songs and wearing masks and, uh, and everything. The children make um, everything, so that's... And it starts like on a Monday, and by Friday there's like a little performance or the, uh, art exhibit of what right. they've done. Yeah. Wow. I I must say I love how you're marrying all these different mm -hmm. art forms together when you 
create a program like that. You know, there's some theater, there's some uh, you know, dance and movement, and there's discussion, and there's teaching moments, and there's just some drawing and just some hands-on stuff. And it's, um, you know, I think it takes a special person like yourself to see the vision of all these different things and how can we tie them together. And I know you've got um, a theater performance coming up that we're going to have at the UUI, that's um, my church, the Unitarian Universalist Church of Indianapolis, in a couple weeks. And what you're doing is you are going to have the kids who come in for it create a theater project that day, and then they're going to act it out that day and maybe incorporate some puppets and fun stuff. Can you explain more what that is? And and I know you developed it at the art museum. How did you come up with this? (laughs) Yeah, I was asked, um, I think it's three years ago now, to start doing some storytelling and to create plays. And um, um, I, of course, said yes because I'm a closet actress <laughs> and so I said oh yes I can do that and I'm like oh my gosh what have I said um and so I was given a basic theme and then I just went with it so the basic theme every month at the art museum is um a, is in coordination with family day and family day happens on the first Saturday of every month and they usually have a theme so my plays theme is supposed to kind of hook into to what we're talking about or a special exhibit or something like that. So the second play we did was called um, Golden Scales and Silver Wings, and it was to be in the Asian Gallery in China. And um, so from there, I just developed this play about a little goldfish who has who swims in a uh, lily pond and he wants to fly and um, about a beautiful uh, crane who sees them and they become friends and the crane helps him fly by letting him jump on his back or, and then he they fly to different terrains well um, the people who come to see the play will be able to create um, puppets um, some masks some um, um, noisemakers, and some a little bit of scenery, and they're going to be stationed around. I believe this is in the sanctuary. They'll be stationed, and so when we do our flying, we'll come by each one of those people, and they will be able to say something or do something, and we'll talk about that as we, you know, before we actually do it. Um, and there's there are some funny lines in it for them to say, and um, and I do this this part with Mary McKenzie, who's, who does all the plays with me. And, um, she's a wonderful, also closet actress <laughs> and a visual artist who uh, works mostly with preschoolers. And she also works uh, in the preschool at the art museum. Um, and then the other wonderful part about this is that Sophia Inger is going to help, um, make this beautiful silk panel for the sanctuary and it's going to be partly the story that we're telling (laughs) i know it gives me chills so she's gonna do this in gold resist and people who come and adults can help absolutely um they're going to be able to color in and show them how to use the silk paint to color it 
and then she'll dry it. I don't know, magic, somehow. <laughs> <laughs> somehow it's going to be magically dry by the time the play is ready. But I, I don't think that's a problem because silk dries really fast, so we'll, we'll dry it. Um, and then that is going to be the river that we we actually have to cross over some rivers and things. And so we'll have like maybe two to four people holding either end of the panel and they will move their arms up and down and you know how lovely silk can float and that'll be a floating river um, that part that's in the play so um i'm just very excited about it because uh, mary and i have wanted to start doing uh plays not not the plays i do for the museum but the plays that we come up with in the future sometime <laughs> but we wanted to start doing them for other audi audiences so this is kind of like our introduction into doing that so but um, most of the plays I do are for the art museum and they belong to the art museum so I can't reproduce them but this particular time I just begged and begged and begged <laughs> and I said I know please please and she said um, Jen Mayhill who's my um, wonderful boss there said if you change something, then it's not the same play. So yeah, you could do it. So this is <laughs> this one time I'm going to go ahead and, and be able to do it because it is my absolute favorite that of all the ones that I've done. And we've been doing this a long time. There's a lot of little plays out there. So um, yeah, yeah. I, I know the feeling of having to leave an art piece behind for a job. Um, mm -hmm. So similarly, when I was a children's librarian, several different libraries I was at, I created felt stories. So these are, you know, the the f flat pieces of felt that are in colors, and you yeah. can cut them out, and then you put them on a felt board, and you can tell the story using those. Well, I loved creating those when I was a children's librarian, and, and I made, you know, all the classic fairy tales and all kinds of stuff. And, um, but then I felt I had to leave them behind because I made them on the job oh, and I made yes, them yes. with materials You're that they right. had bought. Mm -hmm. And so I did have to leave them behind, but several, you know, I've recreated again and then I had to leave it at that job and, yes. uh, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but it is, it's great to be paid to do something, you know, it's what it, yeah. one of those things that the few the times when I'd be creating that, I'm like, yeah. I can't believe they're paying me to do this. Yes. I love this. It's so exciting. And then you have to leave it behind and yeah. it's a little That's sad. That's so true. So there's a whole closet full now of, um, of props and little bits of scenery and things that we created um, that just stay there now. They have their own little place. And um, so what we're doing now is we're kind of reusing a lot of that and uh, coming up with uh, different stories for them so yeah yeah nice so here's the big philosophical question but you, you're a philosophy major so you can handle this um what's the main message you're trying to convey with your artwork well yeah that's a big one um i i want very much to somehow be able to have people who are very different from each other be able to create art together and um, understand that they are they're joined you know not just by the art project but in getting to know each other by doing art together there's something very very deep and um, helpful in that and sometimes it doesn't happen at the moment they're making it Sometimes it happens um, when they're leaving, 
or the next day and they realize that they made some kind of connection there and maybe they'll never see that person again but they were able to um, to find a, another way of understanding someone who was very different than them and um, um, Sophia and I have been trying for um, since last summer when um, people were starting to feel really upset and um, there's a lot of anger and, and stuff and we decided we were going to do something and the first thing we did was at the art museum it was a big quilt big fabric quilt called um, repairing the fabric of life I think and so you could come and you could um, have a piece of fabric and you could draw on it or you could write out your thoughts on it and then we placed it on a larger piece of fabric that was displayed I think at the arts garden but we also had these armbands that were just pieces of fabric and you could write out a wish for someone yourself or the planet or someone and so you wore those on your armband on your wrist and this was at um, uh, Martin Luther King Day um, but then at some point before you left you had to take it off and give it to a total stranger and that was amazing to see because hmm. sometimes people would stand there and they would just kind of look like who am I going to give this to I don't know I don't want to do this or they would they would find the person you'd see them find that person <clears throat> And they just walk right up to them and say, I'd like to give you this. Can I tie it on your, your arm? That was really neat. It was really neat. And I thought, I hope that somehow, <clears throat> somehow that depth that they were feeling right there, they can translate, we can all translate that out into the world so that we're not so afraid to do that when you leave the... Uh, protective confines of a place like an art museum. <laughs> so um, um, I, I didn't have anybody really say they didn't want to do it. You know, sometimes they kind of looked at it like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do that. And, and they did. So um, so that's one of the things that, um, that I'm trying to do is find those ways to uh, interconnect with people. I can't believe it. We're at our last question. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and that is, what is your favorite art book or story? Well, my favorite art book, I have to say, is a felting book. And it's the very first book that I ever got. And it was called How to Make Felt by Anne Belgrave. And she was, she is from England. And it's not the best book in the world, but I just took that book to my heart. And when I was making it, uh, I mean, it has water splatters all over it because I literally would turn a page and do exactly what she said. <laughs> and so my hands were wet <laughs> So uh, from making the felt. So, um, And I loved that she had children. She had children from all different backgrounds and races in her book. And I'm looking at them. I'm going, oh, my gosh, kids can do this. I can totally teach a kid's workshop on how to do this. So, um, And I did, but... Um, and still do. So that was my favorite book, and it still is. It's very careworn, <laughs> but um, I'd never, I'd never part with it because um, there was something about her spirit that I just really connected with, just through the pages, just seeing her, her the the things that she made, the crazy hats that she made, and the, the huge bags and the. Um, vests were 
um, really inspiring, but what really got me was the wall hangings, and that's what I wound up really loving to make, was um, being able to be really free in a way that you're not when you have to do a wearable. Um, to make a wall hanging, you can make a picture, you can make just texture. It doesn't have to make sense. It could just be your emotion at the moment. So that's my favorite book. My favorite story, you've heard before. <laughs> it's called The Portrait Story. And um, when I was uh, about 12, I went to, um, our art teacher had everyone draw a self-portrait. And he was going to enter it into this contest that was a statewide contest. And so I won the best in our area. And uh, it was taken down to Ayers, when Ayers was downtown. And they actually matted every single child's picture. Oh. And this is like in the early, early 60s, I guess. And that's a lot of a lot of paintings were actually matted for free and then displayed. And so I were supposed to do a self-portrait and I painted a picture of a flower. And <laughs> it was, I don't know why I did this, but, and I don't know how he got this in the show, but he said, well, if that's how you see yourself and then that's who you are. You're a flower. <laughs> I'm like, oh God. So... He did. He let it in, and, and they let it in, and it won a prize, uh, but it didn't win first prize. And so when I walked in and I wanted to see the best in show, it was this picture that looked like it had been done by an adult, and it was pastel, I believe, and um, it was all cordoned off by these red velvet um, stanchion kind of things, and I walked right through them. <laughs> right up to the picture and I thought it was the most beautiful face I'd ever seen. It was of a little boy about my age with brown hair, green eyes, and a really crooked nose. And I kept staring at his nose thinking, why would he make his nose crooked? And I just didn't get that. I was like, I would never do a picture of myself with a crooked nose. But and but and so I'd go off and I'd look at other things and I come came back um, within a few minutes, I'd come back and I'd just stare at those eyes and I thought, wow, this is really good. I could never do anything like this until I'm much older. But everyone in the, in the show was supposed to be 12, so, you know. So I go home and I'm all excited and my mom's washing dishes and her back's to me. And I, I go, oh my gosh, it was so wonderful, Mom. It was just like um, these pictures in my... She said, well, did you see yours? I said, yes, it was in a room and a pie on a wall, and it looked really great. It's got a mat on it. And I said, but the best show was this, this self-portrait of this little boy, and he had brown hair and green eyes. And her back was to me. She goes, he had what? Because <laughs> I'm African-American. And she goes, he had what? I said, it's the most beautiful face I've ever seen. She goes, oh. So... She didn't say too much, and she's still washing dishes, and I'm still blabbering on about about it. So as time went on, I, I would draw boys. I started drawing boys then. And um, we went to Mexico, and I'd draw boys in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> we go to Canada, I'd draw Canadian boys, and so it was obvious I was liking boys. And then when I got to be 19, I went to IUPUI 
to college um, and it was very serious and I dressed in pantsuits and and uh, not in t-shirts, not in those jeans and t-shirts. I was serious. I was going to be, a, you know, a teacher or something. And this is early 70s and no one was in a pantsuit <laughs> but me. <laughs> so that ended quickly because I... I just couldn't stand it. It's like I look 30 and they all look like they were supposed to look like they were 19. So I stopped and I started wearing a tie-dyed purple t-shirt and some jeans and some like little cute shoes. And um, in philosophy class, there was about 20 of us that we just went everywhere together. And we were all different races, all different backgrounds. And we were this huge mob. <laughs> and we would just like get in our cars and go out to Turkey Run or or go caving or spelunking or um, go to a play or go listen to music or or go play kickball at Holiday Park. And we did that for about four years all together. And then we started pairing off. So people would pair off. So um, I had been asked to meet up at a park and with the young man and he wanted to we would show each other our portfolios because he was in um his name is mark and he was in um uh, at heron and so uh he has this beat up skylark from the 70s and he's showing me his his pictures and i showed him mine first and there's the picture of the boy with the brown hair and the green eyes and the crooked nose. And I looked at him. I said, that's you. He goes, yeah. And I said, I've been in love with you since I was 12 years old. And he <laughs> freaks out. And he's like, ah, what? What are you talking about? I said, this picture won best in show at Ayers Warehouse, or at Ayers um, um, Pastel Show in 1960, whatever it was. He goes, yeah. Because well, yeah, I that's that's how I first saw you. That's how I first knew you. But I, you know, we didn't know each other, of course, because you change as you grow up. So I go home and I tell my mom this, and I said, Mom, do you remember when I was twelve and I told you about the picture about she said about the boy with the brown hair, the crooked nose, and the green eyes? <laughs> and I said, Yeah. She said. I could tell she knew. I said, I met him. She goes, it's Mark, isn't it? Because he had come over, but he had never shown me the pictures. And so I didn't get it. Uh -huh. But he had come over a lot, and my, my parents liked him. But she goes, it's Mark, isn't it? And I said, yes. <laughs> Something simpler had happened to her with her and my dad actually meeting. She actually saw him in a dream, and she actually did meet him. So I was... Um, I was a little bit afraid, you know, it's like this is the 70s and we're two different races and supposedly this isn't supposed to work, but it did work and 47 years later, <laughs> we're wow. still together. So, um, so that is my favorite art story because if I hadn't been interested in art, if I hadn't been crazy enough to draw myself in a way that my our teacher thought was unique enough to enter into the contest and and by doing that 
that way he actually kind of broke the rules to get me in that contest and yet my picture was just a few feet away from Mark's picture and we later found out that we had lived within five year, five miles of each other when we were growing up okay. never saw each other but we had when we would reminisce, we found that we actually bought our Christmas trees in the same lot. <laughs> but the big one is that his family um, comes from Pennsylvania originally, and so does mine. And we found out that they lived close together. Wow. So it's well. <laughs> so it's like it's kind of like all through the years. I'm, I'm that's way back in history. It's like they were Pennsylvania Dutch, and my family was um, in Chester, Pennsylvania. And Lancaster, Pennsylvania was his people, but there were others that lived really close to where the Scots lived okay. in Chester. So anyway, the, that's my favorite art story because it almost seems like fate. It seems like I could not stop thinking about that face and trying to draw that face. And then all of a sudden, there it was. That was him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's such a romantic story. And, it, and again, it's like you see something and then in reality you're able to actually touch it and, and actually interact with it. Yeah. And, yeah. And it seems like a, a great example of how art can connect people. Yes. Maybe that's why I, I like doing what I do because I, I truly believe it is possible to change things uh, through art and and for people to become very close and connected um, through seeing art, through seeing it. It's like, they always say it speaks to you, but I think it does a lot more than that. I think it's like music, when music just flushes over you and you just know that there's more to everything. I think that's what art does. I think it does connect people and, and it's just, we just have to be open enough to say, okay, okay, this is bigger than me. I'm just gonna gonna try to understand this in some way and connect with it in some way. So yeah, that's my favorite um, art story. <laughs> Lovely. Well, thank you, Paula. Thank you so much for coming on the show, mm -hmm. and hopefully, I will see you in the very near future. I hope so too. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And now for our story of the day the art therapy movement. Now, I'm going to condense the story of the art therapy movement <laughs> down to just telling you about the guy who coined the term art therapy and then my own take on the two major types of art therapy. This is a big topic. There's lots of ins and outs, what have yous, and characters that have added to the richness of what we now coin uh, art therapy. Um, but it all began in 1942 in Britain. A guy named Adrian Hill had been uh, hospitalized for tuberculosis. He was very sick, and uh, but Every time he got up from his hospital bed, he would go to the little break room, and there he would create a piece of artwork or two. And he realized every time I get up and I go and I I do a little bit of art, it's therapeutic. I feel better afterward. 
And he started telling his fellow patients about it. And then they would meet in the break room and they would all make art together. And they all felt just revived after creating their pieces. And so after that, after he was released from the hospital, he wrote a book about his experiences and it's called Art Versus Illness. It came out in 1945 and in it, he came up with the term art therapy. After that, uh, psychologists, therapists, they took on the idea of art as therapy, used it in their practice, and also a lot of artists like myself will use some of the ideas and philosophy in our own artwork or just for our own personal enjoyment. One of the things that Adrian Hill is quoted as saying is that art engrosses the mind and releases creative energy. And what he meant by that was when you sit down and you create a piece of artwork, you get in the zone, so to speak, and you just keep going and going and it you you get your mind off of the bad stuff that's going on in your life, the burdens in your life, your illness or whatever, and it helps you release some of that and get to a better place. Um and I see art therapy being used in two ways. And now I'm obviously really oversimplifying here to the some two basic concepts. One, I see people using it as a product to help psychoanalysis. So as an example, you might go into a therapist and they'll say, you know, draw me a picture of your father or something like that. And you draw a picture and then you talk to the therapist about it and using the image that you created, symbols within it, it helps in the therapeutic process where they can, you know, release the demons, share the story of what may have happened to you in a way it might be a good beginning of sharing a story of something that happened in your past. And that can be very beneficial for a lot of people. And then there's the idea, and this really goes back to Adrian Hill and his ideas, that we use art to get away, to release. It's the process, okay, not the product that is enjoyable, the whole point, <laughs> even. Um, and I, I gotta say, you know, listening to Paula's, Scott Franz's stories, and a lot of times with my own work, it's what's so enjoyable about creating pieces of artwork is that you sit down and as you're making it, you get in the zone and the process of making it is what's so enjoyable and the end product might not even matter. Um, and of course, being a professional artist myself, I really have a push and pull there because sometimes I'm sitting down and I just, I just need this as my art therapy today. And other times, oh, I've got a show coming up and I really want to make you know, garden pieces that are, you know, of that theme and hopefully people will enjoy them as much as I enjoy gardens myself, you know. So um, sometimes there can be a push and a pull between 
those two things, whether it's just about the process or it's just about the product. But, um, but either way, I do think that the art therapy movement has really become entrenched in the subsequent art movements that we see today. For example, the intuitive painting movement. Um, intuitive painting movement, for those of you who haven't heard about it, is a new movement where artists will sit down and they will create a piece and they don't plan it out ahead of time. And what happens is they get in the zone, they just do it, they make it. Um, but sometimes they might, you know, a, a symbol or something about their past might surface in the work and then they can use that to um, better themselves or they can learn something about themselves from the process. And yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's the story, very simplified, of the art therapy movement. I love how with this story, Adrian Hill uh, created this idea out of necessity. You know, it just, he needed to, to get out of the sick room and to create something and it was so beneficial to him then he gets other people to join in and art therapy is born. Um, this story is not one that's in my book, uh, The Alchemy of Art Stories for the Classroom. Um, it is rather like a lot of the stories in that book. Um, as you know, a lot of them are factual stories. Other stories are folktales. But this is just one that I felt, I just want to explain in my own words, the root of that movement. Um, because I think it ties in so well with what Paula Scott Franz shared with us today. All right, that's it. So this concludes our Alchemy of Art podcast for today. May these stories about art and the creative process inspire you. May you find your voice. You have been listening to the Alchemy of Art podcast. To find out more about Annie Hurston and her work, go to azirfineart.com. That's A-Z-H-I-R-F-I-N-E-A-R-T dot com. <laughs>